0: Welcome to the Scrubverse Podcast, your last stop for the latest in gaming news and pop culture. We're your hosts, Chris and Corey. Prepare for dissension. So today, we're going to do something a little bit different, perhaps a bit more scripted. You'll probably notice that this podcast is much shorter than usual, and that's because Cory is out for vacation this week, so I felt the desire to do a little bit of self-reflection. When I first started drafting this podcast out, it was with the intention to chronicle all these different game-collecting adventures or encounters that I experienced. Maybe with the dates and times of the games that I acquired, perhaps throwing in some of the lessons I learned through it all. But as the draft began to take shape, it ended up transforming into something a lot more personal. This episode isn't going to just be about video games, as I will be detailing certain events from my childhood and personal life as a young adult. This episode will be a bit more of a therapy session some of the topics are less than glamorous so if you're sensitive to themes of domestic abuse or drug abuse this is your final warning over the last five years or so i've been yearning for the opportunity to record my progression as a gamer i've tried keeping up a personal blog on destructoid and while i was able to make a few entries here and there i was doing it for the wrong reasons I cared more about having people read my logs in the hopes of one day becoming internet famous, rather than trying to connect to a community of like-minded individuals. And while my journal did spur up some healthy conversation, it was ultimately abandoned because I felt that in that moment, it wasn't worth my time because I failed to draw a regular audience. I gave up because the perceived interest in older video games didn't seem to be there. Or at least, that was the excuse I gave myself. Now that I'm a bit older, I've concluded that I really don't give a shit whether I'm talking to a wall or not. I just want to share my experiences. This conversation that I started having with myself began after revisiting an old Kotaku article from November 2011 by Mike Fahey titled, Which of the 27 Gamer Classifications Do You Fall Under? I remember vividly where I was when I stumbled upon it as I was just checking into a temporary barracks room to my first duty station at Marine Corps Air Station Miramar. It was just after midnight, and I spent the majority of the day flying cross-country from Jacksonville, North Carolina, to Chicago, to Houston, Texas, to LA, to finally landing in San Diego. Only to spend another three hours trying to find an empty barracks room with the duty officer. Until finally, I was able to plop my fat ass on the bed and pull up this article that I happened to stumble upon. Mike goes into all sorts of hyper-focused tropes, like the loner, who can't seem to intermingle with anyone outside of online interactions and MMOs, or the clown, who spends most of their time trying to mess around with people for the sake of a good laugh, like going backwards in Mario Kart 64, or playing Kirby in Super Smash Bros. sucking somebody in and then jumping off the stage. It wasn't like you could only fit the mold of a single profile either. In reality, the article represented an entire wardrobe of gaming personas that you can fit into. I found myself aligned to The Politician, who would play literally anything and do their best to say something good about it, even though they hated it, or The Importer, which should be pretty self-explanatory. But there was one title that truly connected to me, which helped spark this discussion in the first place and that is The Collector, to quote, may actually have more knowledge than the true nerd, but won't offer it up until prompted. Always willing to offer a suggestion of a great game, followed by the admission that the game is unattainable. They have seemed to have played everything on the original console, and amazingly have kept up with the hobby since its inception. They are the absolute best at spotting a deal, or calling someone out on a terrible one. They always seem to be more mature than most gamers, but that may be because of the wisdom that they bring to the table from all the gaming that they have done. Their skills fall into the jack-of-all-trades, master-of-none category, as they may collect more than they actually game. They have a hard time finishing anything, but a very easy time starting something up, and the deal that they got on the game could often be more important to them than the game itself." Unquote. When I first read this article, I was almost offended as it nearly describes me to a T. I never really liked admitting that I have a hard time committing to a single game. In fact, it's pretty random when I decide to delve deeper into a specific title because my mood and taste fluctuate frequently. A game that I've spent 10-20 hours on can easily be thrown to the wayside in order to try something new. More times than not, I'd probably get about an hour into a game before deciding that I need to try something else, or worse, go back out on the hunt for something new that could intrigue me. But it's that hunt that tends to bring out the most excitement for me. Finding something obscure, then searching the message boards of other collectors to see if the game is worth the time playing, or at the very least, a good conversation piece. But then I began to think about why I developed these habits in the first place and why I should be considered a collector because I never really thought about it until I started putting the pieces together. I moved around a lot in my youth and adolescence, especially between 1996 and 2005. I have traveled and lived in most of the continental United States and spent some time in Mexico, but the majority of my youth was spent in Long Island, New York. I was part of a small, low-income family residing in a single-wide mobile home within the hamlet of Brentwood, New York. My father was a disabled Navy SEAL who spent most of his days tangled up in his own addictions while my mother spent most of her days either working minimum wage at a bank We're volunteering at the island's sole megachurch, Upper Room Christian Tabernacle. We didn't really have a lot of money to spend on necessities, let alone luxury items like video games. However, that didn't stop my dad from renting a Nintendo Entertainment System from Blockbuster that never quite found its way back. The year might have been like 1991 or 92 but my first memories of gaming came in the form of 1983 Spy Hunter, a top-down arcade racing game in which you would try to shoot and destroy enemy cars. It followed a very simple map that continuously looped, making the same twists and turns, just that the enemies would become more frantic with their attacks and movements over time the further that you would progress. I would sit next to my dad for countless nights, watching him play this game while my mother would be out gallivanting with her church friends of course we also had the nes staple super mario brothers and duck hunt combo cart. i recall my dad being able to just lay out on the couch light gun in hand and blast away each of the ducks with ease meanwhile i had to press the light gun against the tv screen just so i can have a shot at clearing the third stage now mind you i was like three or four at the time so i think i ran a pass Eventually, we came into the ownership of Super Mario Bros. 3 via some family members, and I adore that fucking game. I recall it being the sole game that I would play for hours and hours on end. My favorite level was World 5, where you would start from the ground level and make your way up this Tower of Babel-esque construct in order to reach the second half of the stage, which was up in the heavens. It was also through Super Mario Bros. 3 that I learned that video games can have secrets like locating the three whistles or using different items to unlock hidden areas in the map. I would spend hours trying to use the hammer item on different parts of the environment in effort to discover uncharted routes. Imagine the surprise in four-year-old me when I found the alternate routes to the oasis in the Egyptian-themed World 2 or discovering the hidden islands of the swampy World 3. But even with the NES, I wasn't exactly hooked on video games, at least I don't think so, I think I was too young, until Christmas of 1993 when my oldest half-sister Nicole visited us from Georgia. She had brought with her a Sega Genesis and Sonic the Hedgehog 2, and I recall waking up one morning and walking into our small living room where she was playing Sonic 2 on the television in all of its 16-bit glory. I just stood there, for what seemed like hours, in reality, maybe like 45 minutes, but I was mesmerized as she played. It became my fixation. And funnily enough, my mother curses the day that she brought that system into her home. Nicole ended up giving the Sega Genesis to my parents so that they can give it to me for Christmas. And when I opened it up on Christmas morning, I was beyond overjoyed. Sonic 2 was the only game that I owned and played for almost a year, largely due to the lack of money that our family generated, but also due to the widespread panic that the media perpetrated during the 1990s. This was around the same time that Midway's Mortal Kombat was receiving a lot of press coverage due to its graphic nature, and my mother, being the God-fearing evangelical fundamentalist, took it a step further and virtually banned all other video games in the house. However, Sonic was safe because, per my mother, he was sanctified by God, I shit you not. Now, at the time, I wasn't really complaining about it. My four or five year old brain couldn't comprehend what was really going on, and I probably just registered it as I can keep playing Sonic, so all is good in the world. I hadn't received another console for the better part of three years, and the only other games I would come to own would be Sonic and Knuckles, which I received as a birthday present from my grandparents, Sonic Spinball, which my aunt found randomly lying around the park, and Sonic Classics, which I got as a get-well-soon gift after falling through a fish tank and needing to get stitches. However, my best friend growing up had this very large collection of Sega Genesis titles, which opened my eyes to the outside world of gaming. One of my favorite titles that I discovered through him was Konami's Rocket Knight Adventures. You play as this possum in blue armor with a jetpack named Sparkster. The player can use the jetpack to fly around the stages, and some platforming would require you to ricochet off the walls and avoid hazards like spikes and bottomless pits. The plot involves Sparkster having to fend off this organization called Pigstar, led by the Emperor Devilgus, and you would lead Sparkster through different castles, and caves, valleys, and even into outer space to defend his home kingdom. Besides Rocket Knight, I also got my first taste in some mature titles, namely in the form of Contra Hardcore. I had never heard of the series up until this point, but man, this game blew my fucking mind. It was bloody, it was gritty, it had one of the most grotesque cast of enemies that I have ever seen. The soundtrack was so visceral and heavy, and it was the first game that I had ever seen with multiple endings one of the more memorable endings for me is having the hardcore member being banished to early prehistoric times and being romantically paired up with a monkey companion. And it wasn't just Rocket Knight and Contra that exposed me to this outer world of video games. I was exposed to Cool Spot and The Lion King and Dynamite Heady, Gunstar Heroes, Road Rash, Comic Zone, Vector Man, and so many other games. It was during this time that I learned that video games could be something much more than Sonic, and I was unfortunately missing out on it. Sometime around 1997, my father was in need of a liver transplant due to complications with hepatitis C. It caused advanced cirrhosis of the liver, and he was unable to receive adequate treatment in New York. So he ended up moving cross-country to Roswell, New Mexico, where his family was located, in hopes that he can receive better care in the Southwest while also having the comfort of his extended family around him. This time in our life was especially difficult, as my mother, being the sole breadwinner of the family, was constantly out of the house working multiple jobs— During this time frame, my father continued his drug abuse, so it made it very difficult for me to take part in my escapism, as he partook in his activities in the only room where there was a television. Fortunately, before I left New York, my grandparents gifted me a Sega Game Gear, which I found much comfort in when I just wanted to disconnect from reality. Now, for those of you who don't know, The Game Gear is essentially a mobile Sega Master System as it shares much of the hardware with the home console. In fact, the Game Gear was capable of playing Sega Master System games by use of the Master System converter. The Game Gear was this overtly large, clunky rectangular block with a backlit screen. It was nigh impossible to stick in your pocket as it was significantly larger than the Game Boy. It would take six AA batteries at a time and devour them within three hours, so I had to carry around this brick of a power adapter that you would use for your Sega Genesis. I would often be found hooking my Game Gear up to public power outlets at like a 7-Eleven or the supermarket because I couldn't afford to keep up with the battery life. I owned only two games for the Game Gear growing up, Sonic the Hedgehog 2 and Shining Force, the Sword of Haja. Sonic 2 as a Game Gear game is nothing like the Sega Genesis version, as it was a port from the Sega Master System. The problem with the game was largely due to the screen resolution. The screen was too small for you to really see anything coming for you, especially when the display resolution was 160x144 instead of the regular 320x224 for the Sega Genesis. This makes it especially difficult in a game that puts emphasis on speed when your reaction time is essentially cut in half. However, I was introduced to the world of tactical role-playing by way of Shining Force, the Sword of Haja. I compare Shining Force to being easy Fire Emblem, because after units fall in combat, they don't die, they just return to camp until you can heal them again. But the Sword of Haja's main selling point was its story. It takes place immediately after the events of Shining Force Gaiden. The Sword of Haja follows the story of a young hero named Diana and his allies who were sworn to protect the Sword of Haja. However, due to enemy forces ambushing the young soldiers and stealing the sword, Diana has to lead his company across the nations of Cyprus and Eon in order to reclaim the sword. Older Shining Force games are known for their high quality combat scenes and Hajia is no exception. Even on the Game Gear, Shining Force still looks amazing in 8 bit form. The Game Gear wasn't exactly known for its library, as most of them were ports from the Sega Master System, so having an original title like The Sword of Hajia is a breath of fresh air. We spent about a year or two in New Mexico before moving back home to New York. My father ended up not being eligible for the transplant due to a history of drug and alcohol abuse. I imagine the frustration of wasting your time going cross-country resulted in him just giving up on life and ultimately giving up on us. And that frustration evolved into domestic disputes and domestic violence. Both my parents were eventually arrested, and I was made to stay with some friends of the family for a couple days until my mother was released from prison. At which we immediately fled back to South Huntington, Long Island, where my grandparents resided. The great downside to that trip is us having to quickly sell the majority of our belongings to cover cross country plane tickets, so I ended up having to leave nearly everything I owned behind. Once back in New York, my mother and I ended up sharing a single bedroom in the attic for nearly half a year. It was cramped. There was a bed lined up near one window on the northern wall and another on the opposite. There was old, broken antique furniture littered across the center of the room with scrap pieces of plaques and trophies hidden in the shelves, in the corners, and the drawers. My grandparents were retired and maintained a small business specializing in manufacturing trophies for county-organized sports. I later learned that this was the very same room that my mother shared with her brother when they were growing up, so when my mother was away at work or at school, I would go snooping through my uncle's old crap. Funnily enough, I found an old Playboy magazine from the 70s with Doreen Stern on the cover. As it turns out, she was the first African-American model to be put on the cover of a Playboy. And I sometimes joke and say that it's because of this magazine that influences my personal taste in partners. But in all seriousness, the real gold acquired came in the form of this large, strange device. It looked like it had two phones with a circular dial that took up the bottom half of the controller. And on the side was an inserted cartridge that read Tron. I had stumbled upon my uncle's old Intellivision. Mattel's Intellivision was Atari's first real competition back in the 1980s, and while the system only saw software development from core developers until 1983, there was a slew of solid titles for the rig. Even after the console's demise in the market, small indie and third-party studios began making games that pushed hardware limitations for the Intellivision. One of the games I recall most vividly was Advanced Dungeons & Dragons, It was a top-down dungeon crawler where you controlled this ranger throughout the dark caves of this massive mountain range in search for treasure. I remember enemies in this game being incredibly aggressive, especially the dragon, towards the end of the game as he was so much more faster than you. You would have to manipulate the AI in order to get him stuck into a wall because there was just no way to fight this guy one-on-one. He would kill you before you could fire your first arrow. The map would unfold as you traveled throughout the hallways and corridors of the mountain range, revealing extra arrows or another enemy that would make a mad dash for you. I can still hear the pulsating growl of the dragon as it would emanate more frequently and louder and louder the closer that you came to finding the treasure. Another good game on the Intellivision was Star Strike. It was very reminiscent to the Death Star trench scene in Star Wars Episode Four. It was a simple arcade game where you'd fly down this trench of a space station with all these little UFOs who would appear from behind and try to shoot you down. My biggest complaint with Star Strike was the orientation of the starfighters, because as you fought in rear view mode, you would have to place the fighter directly behind enemy ships in order to hit them. But due to the sensitivity of the control dial, accurately getting behind the enemy was a risk as you ran the chance of falling off target with a slip of a finger, making you into a soft target and making it very easy for the AI to shoot you down. That said, the graphics look great for a second-generation console. The void of space was really fleshed out, and the longer that you survived, the more visible the Earth would be as it would slowly reveal itself from behind another large planet. Visually speaking, it's very similar to the Death Star's Descent on Yavin 4. The Intellivision had a modest library of games, just over 100, and most of them can be found for super cheap. There were a lot of arcade clones like Space Invaders, Centipede, Pac-Man, but there were also a lot of really interesting titles like the stealth-based shooter Night Stalker or Utopia, which is frequently credited to being the first real-time strategy game. Eventually, my mother and I moved out of my grandparents' attic and into this small basement studio apartment in Deer Park, Long Island. It was this pseudo-urbanized town that was essentially split in two where one side was really nice, with these high-end fashion stores and restaurants, and the other side was dirty and largely unkempt, mostly factories and automotive shops. Living in Deer Park was very tumultuous. My mother was in the early stages of getting a divorce, and those frustrations in dealing with losing everything would materialize into physical and psychological abuse against me. The abuse actually started occurring in the later months leading up to our departure from New Mexico, but it just got worse and worse as time went on. And now I was in this environment where she was able to act freely and unchecked. I tried ignorantly running away from home a few times, but being just barely 11 years old does not promise much of a future alone. Living in Deer Park got me started on my side hustles. I was broke. We were broke. And those video games weren't going to pay for themselves. So I tried everything. I tried mowing lawns, washing cars, sweeping up shops at nearby convenience stores. I even, and I I might regret saying this because it's kind of fucked up, but there was this underground market amongst the kids in the neighborhood for these chrome or metallic air caps on tires. We would go around the neighborhood cars and different automotive shops and steal these really nice looking air caps off these vehicles and try to sell them to turn a profit. That's actually how I made the majority of my money at that time. But the most important thing to gather from this is that I was always doing whatever I could to get out of the house. It was during this time that I learned about the arcade scene, namely through Mortal Kombat and SNK fighting games like The Last Blade or Samurai Showdown. There was this hobby shop about a mile from my place down Deer Park Avenue called Next Generation, and they had everything. They had old school video games, they had TCGs, tabletops, anime, and this four-slot SNK MVS arcade cabinet. I remember dumping all the pocket change so that i can scrounge up week after week to play blazing star or fatal fury i recall nights where me and my friends would all gather around this one kid who kept on playing through the entirety of metal slug x watching the game's recreation of independence day where the soul plane kamikazes right into the center of the alien mothership all while like the first pokemon movie or akira would be playing on the tvs in the background Now, during this renegade time period in my life, I made friends with this mischievous little cretin, and we would get into all sorts of trouble together. But when we weren't out causing a ruckus, he would invite me over to play his N64, which for me was a life-changing moment, especially with the introduction of The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time. That game changed my entire perspective of what video games could be, It was the first true three-dimensional game that I've ever played, and I was blown away by the perceived realism of the environments. I have probably dropped thousands of hours into that game, just replaying it over and over across multiple consoles, from the date that it was released to present day. It is quite possibly my favorite game of all time. Everything from the setting, the theme, the dynamics between Link, Zelda, Sheik, Ganon, All of it just got me so engrossed into this fantasy world. I became borderline obsessed with it. It would be all that I would talk about for months on end, and when I wasn't playing in the game, I was drawing out scenes of young Link traversing through the fields of Hyrule, or adult Link having a showdown with Phantom Ganon in the Forest Temple. There was just something about this game that devoured me whole. But through the N64, I learned about all the greats first-party franchises that Nintendo had to offer. Super Mario 64, Star Fox, Mario Kart, Yoshi's Story, F-Zero X. It was my indoctrination into becoming a Nintendo fanboy, and it's because of these games that I would later go hunt out for their predecessors. It wasn't long after learning about Ocarina of Time that I had this chance encounter at a Pathmark supermarket. I was leaving the store with my mother, and I went to go return the cart to the cart rack. And on this nearby garbage can, there sat a bright green Game Boy Color with a copy of Pokemon Blue inside. Now, if you recall previously, I said that my mother was a devout Christian fundamentalist. Around this time that Pokemon got huge, there was this huge push by the church to prevent parents from allowing their children to play with Pokemon products like the card game or the video game because of the use of energy and evolution. Personally at home I wasn't allowed to play any sort of TCG because of the esoteric themes depicted on those cards be it Pokemon, Magic the Gathering, or Yu-Gi-Oh! So starting with Pokemon Blue I began devising ways of hiding these banned substances in plain sight so that my mother wouldn't beat my ass for participating in games that every other elementary or middle school age kid was playing. But Pokemon was my first real taste of the traditional turn-based RPG, and outside of Shining Force, I really didn't have any experience with role-playing games. I remember getting a Charmander and only training up that Charmander. By the time I was at the Elite Four, I had a Charizard leveled up to the mid-80s and a bunch of really weak normal-type Pokemon that would act as punching bags when I was busy reviving my fainted Charizard. Despite my poor execution as a Pokemon trainer, Pokemon Blue hooked me in and pulled me deep into the realm of role-playing games, while also affording me a chance to do so away from home through my Game Boy Color. Sometime in late 1999, my father came back. It must have been sometime in September because I don't remember it being too cold, but it was fucking pouring one evening. We got a knock at the door and when my mother opened it up, there was my pops on his knees begging for forgiveness. His jeans were soaked Because the path leading to our downstairs apartment was all concrete. And we had an issue where the water would constantly pool up near our front door because the drain clogged. So we would have to fetch towels and lay them out near the door to keep the water out. But there he was, kneeling in a pool of water that was already ankle deep. And my mother was pissed because when she opened the door, the water rushed into our kitchen bypassing the few towels that we had laid out to barricade the door, soaking the thin, ugly purple rug that covered the entirety of our apartment with this putrid drain water. Nonetheless, she ended up taking him in. Now, according to my mother, apparently one of the pastors spoke with the Holy Spirit and told him that he needed to do whatever he could to postpone my mother from finalizing the divorce in which he was successful because my mother believes that God would use a pastor to intervene. So he says he reached out to my father and told him that he needed to repent and come back home to his family. What actually happened was that my father's best friend found my old man drugged out of his mind on dope. He waited him to finish his trip to make sure that he didn't OD, and then he took him to his home to get him cleaned up. Then he called the pastor and told him that he needed help getting him clean, maybe going through a rehabilitation center. So naturally, the best choice that the pastor can come up with was to call his estranged wife and dump him on her. But ultimately, my mother ended up taking him back because she believes that it was the will of God and shit and whatever. It wasn't without its troubles, but I think that my father realized that his best chance of living a somewhat peaceful life in his final days would be to return home to his family. The abuse that I was experiencing with my mother decreased as her attention was focused more on her mending the relationship with my father. Jumping forward to early 2000, my father was in critical need of a liver transplant. In fact, At that time, he was set to expire in a matter of weeks. Every day was either spent at church praying for a miracle or at the hospital so that the nurses could administer medication to ease the pain. This one particular night, we had just gotten home from a late evening service, and my aunt rolls up to our apartment, letting us know that my father was placed at the top of the transplant list and they recently received the necessary organs for him to undergo the surgery. I didn't quite understand everything that was going on, but had I been more mature and savvier to the situation, I could imagine the whole experience being so surreal. To go through what could be your final days, just hoping for the chance to be given life anew. I was rushed over to my cousin's place, damn near thrown out the car, and the adults pile into the minivan and rush out to the hospital. Ultimately, it was successful. He made it out alive. Now, with all that said, did things really change? No, not really. Only a few days after the surgery, he tried contacting an old friend of his to get him some dope so he can shoot up in the confines of the hospital. His thought process was that the needles that they have at the hospital are always sterile, so he wouldn't worry about contracting bloodborne illnesses or whatever. It didn't really go over too well, and someone caught the guy at the front gate. The medical personnel were mandated from that point on to keep a 24-hour watch on my dad until his release, and even after he got out, he continued to struggle with substance abuse for the remainder of his life, be it heroin, cocaine, alcohol, whatever he can get his hands on. I will give him credit to one thing, though. He was able to hide it really well from my mom, or... My mother was purposefully being blind to it all. I think that she just wanted to live out this fantasy life in her mind where everything was okay. Ultimately, it worked out in my favor because not long after my dad got better, he started holding down a job, we were able to move out of Deer Park and into the outskirts of a village called Lindenhurst. Now, Lindenhurst was this rundown fishing town. It's right off of the Venetian shores of the Long Island Sound. There wasn't much to it, but it was home to my own personal crown jewel growing up. The sole Game Crazy in southern Long Island. Game Crazy was a subsidiary of Hollywood Video, and it offered a lot of the same deals that GameStop did before GameStop started doing elite memberships. This is also back in the day where I think GameStop was EB Games. I don't remember. But they had this MVP membership where... For every product that was in the store that was used, you can get 5 to 20% off. They touted that they were the only one of the gaming chains that offered retro systems like the Sega Genesis and the NES at a reduced rate if you followed their membership. So it was more like an updated Funko Land before that place closed up shop. The short time period between 2000 and 2006 gave me the chance to actually be a normal kid. I was beginning to foster a healthy relationship with my parents, and I still kept up working and doing side jobs to make a little bit of cash. But this time I was able to save it as I was spending more time at home. It was then that I had it in my mind that I wanted to start collecting video games. I wanted to catch up on the things that I missed out when I was younger. So I managed to pick up a, an N64, a PlayStation 2, a GameCube, along with replacing some of the older games and consoles that I had lost during my move from New Mexico. I discovered the world of Final Fantasy VII about six years too late. I remember I found it in a big lot, and I had to convince my mom that the storyline was an allegory comparing Cloud Strife to Jesus Christ in order to convince her to let me buy it. Shopping with my dad was a lot easier because he didn't really give a shit. He would just get me whatever I asked him for, and he got me Legend of Dragoon on a whim. Those of you who have been following me for a while, you know my love for that game. Over time, my small collection began to take shape. Most of my games were from established IPs like Mario and Sonic, but I began to hunt for more obscure titles that weren't so common. I became a huge fan of the Paper Mario series, picking up both the original for N64 and the Thousand Year Door for GameCube, which to this day is somewhere on my top 10 favorite RPGs of all time. I also got really big into the Metroid Prime series since I didn't have access to Halo because I lacked an Xbox. But every day I would play that after school with my friends playing the multiplayer modes. In fact, there was this one time that the whole extended family on my mother's side decided to go to Manhattan during the Christmas holiday. We went to go see the Phantom of the Opera on Broadway. By chance, we ended up in the same building that housed the Nintendo store. And on this big-ass television screen was playing Metroid Prime 2 multiplayer. I dragged my dad and made a beeline to it while the remainder of the family was shopping around for the next couple of hours and i spend most of my time holding a gamecube controller taking on all challengers i also got into fantasy star online during this time which was sega's traditional rpg series comparable to the final fantasy series from square enix pso offered a robust online experience for 2005 2006, but I ended up playing the entire game solo due to lacking internet access. Guilty Gear also grabbed my attention due to the phenomenal soundtrack, heavily drawing inspiration from 1980s speed metal bands like Judas Priest, Metallica, Slayer. The OST, along with the quirkiness of the cast, helped motivate me to collect the entire series as time went on. But unfortunately, all good things must come to an end. In the summer of 2006, about a week after my 17th birthday, my old man began to experience a great deal of pain in his lower back. At first, we thought it was just him having a bad trip to the chiropractor. But after further doctor visits and the MRIs and the hospital visits, He was diagnosed with stage 4 lung cancer, which had spread out to his bones, his stomach, and his brain. There was nothing that we can do about it but just sit and wait. And that has got to be one of the most frightening and depressing moments that anybody could experience in their life. Knowing that you are on the verge of death, and this time there is no hope, there is no miracle organ that can save your life. My old man passed away within a month of his diagnosis. I still remember what I was doing that night. I had been staying at one of my cousin's house for a few weeks since my father had been admitted to Huntington Hospital for end-of-life care. I was sitting on the floor of her bedroom playing Final Fantasy X. I was approaching the third Seymour fight when I get called into the living room. My mother had just come home from the hospital along with her sisters, and everyone had the face of total dread. She told me the news of my father's passing, and I was just numb. My mental processes comprehended the news and the weight that it carried, and I remember the storm of emotions that were beginning to brew inside me, but at the same time, what I think was my inner fight or flight instincts were doing whatever it could to prevent me from having a breakdown in that moment. And all I can really say to my mother was something along the lines of, you know, don't worry, I'm fine. It's okay. Everything's going to be okay. And through the pain, I put on this facade of strength. I stuck out all the hugs and the brief moments of grief that everyone was experiencing, and I just bottled it up and walked away right back into my cousin's bedroom to return to the comfort of a PlayStation controller. I believe that my reaction to retreat from the situation is due to years of experiencing varying levels of personal trauma and remedying it by diving into a fantasy world where I can fix things. In a video game, everything is mendable. More often than not, that's the purpose of the game, that you can go change the world around you, you make it better, you fix your problems. I think that that mentality is what drives the type of games that I'm drawn to. I can't really connect with sports games or arena shooters or any other game that's made out there for general entertainment. I'm drawn into games where there is often a very personal conflict between the main character and the antagonist. And I believe that it is due to my own inability to control the raging currents within my own life that I retreat into these fantasies that I can make everything okay. I don't know if that was really healthy to do that. I don't know if it was really healthy to develop that habit, but I don't think I knew the difference at that time. Soon after my father's burial, my mother expected me to come home, and I was adamant about not returning home. I pleaded with my aunt and uncle to stay with them because I knew that over time, things were going to revert back to the way things were before my father came home. I was expecting the physical and mental abuse to return, coupled with the addition of whatever losing a spouse can bring. There was some debate over it for a few days, but ultimately, I was returned to the care of my mother, a decision that I would later learn they would regret. Things got increasingly worse, and in addition to the abuse that I had experienced, there were times where I, as a son, as someone's child, was put into some very uncomfortable situations at the behest of an ailing widow. Video games became my only outlet for escapism, and any day that I was not made to interact with the people around me was perceived as a personal victory. This behavior carried into most of my personal relationships well into the remainder of high school and college. With the exception of a select few people, I rarely conversed with anyone casually outside of my responsibilities, of school, and my place of employment. If it wasn't about new releases or discussing classic games, I couldn't really hold a conversation for fear that the topics could wander into territory that I felt was too personal. Upon finishing my senior year of high school, I was accepted into Long Island University. I was so indecisive with my choice of major that I decided to try a little bit of everything and just figure it out as time went on. That plan worked for a total of two weeks, as not long after I started classes, I was acquainted by what could only be described as the pool room crew. These were a large group of college students that would skip class and hang out together. Sometimes people who didn't even go to the school would show up. Like there was this DJ that would bring his entire rig with him with strobe lights, speakers, smoke machine, the whole thing. They'd be blasting music and people would be jumping on tables and chairs, dancing, sneaking alcohol into the common areas. It was it was crazy. It was a crazy experience. But when the crew wasn't busy getting turned up, They'd bring their televisions and their consoles, and they'd stack them on top of each other. There'd be games of Marvel vs. Capcom 2, Street Fighter 3rd Strike, Super Smash Bros. Brawl going side by side. There'd be entire let's play parties where every night we'd gather around the one kid with the PlayStation 3 as he would try to clear the campaign of Metal Gear Solid 4 or Devil May Cry. It was here that I was first introduced to the world of console modifications and imports as this one guy would show us all these weird and obscure games on his modded PlayStation 2. Like Ka 2, where you play this mosquito who flies around sucking blood from scantily clad women. Or Gekibou, where you play as this really creepy guy with a camera taking pictures of everyone that you pass in the street. Even though I was neglecting in my schoolwork. I seriously believed that I was benefiting from spending all my time with this group of people. Because while I was still playing video games, I began to learn how to talk and interact with people again. These relationships weren't solely based on video games, and I legitimately began to care about these people. It motivated me to get out of my shell and start meeting others without the attachment of video games. And by the end of the semester, I had a very large group of friends and, I mean, even started dating. However, during my second semester of university, that's when reality started to kick back in. My poor attendance reflected in my 0.9 GPA, and I was quickly put on academic probation. I also learned that most of my friends I had made throughout the year were mostly seniors, who would soon leave to start their own careers in whatever field that they focused in, in whatever state needed them. My girlfriend at the time was also graduating with her master's degree in accounting, ready to move on and begin her professional career. And to top it all off, I decided late in the previous semester to leave home and couch surf from dorm room to dorm room to apartment. I had trapped myself, setting myself up for failure. I couldn't continue school since you can't collect financial aid on academic probation and my part-time job wasn't enough to pay the rent on my own. So sheepishly, I had to ask my girlfriend to live with her in a crowded two-bedroom apartment with her four-piece family. Over time, we began fighting about money and she'd always go back pointing to the collection of video games that I had built over the course of years, but it would always go back to why are you spending all your money on these games when you could be spending money on food or rent or whatever. In effort to prove her wrong, to relieve some of the pressure that she was putting on me and to show her a glimmer of maturity, I took my entire collection of video games and traded them into a GameStop for a grand total of $300. My collection that I spent nearly eight years trying to rebuild was sold off for a measly $300 that lasted less than a week. I spent probably the next two weeks walking to nearby businesses, trying to get a job. I was crestfallen. Everything that I worked so hard to reclaim slipped through my hands yet again due to a series of unfortunate events, but this time by my own influence. I was worried for my future and my own emotional well-being. I knew things weren't going to work out with my significant other, and the constant nights of coming home to hear her and her mother fight over my unemployment weighed in heavily on me. Ultimately, an offhanded remark about her bringing her problems home caused me to snap, to which I grabbed the remainder of my belongings in a suitcase and told everyone that I was leaving. And I started walking down the nearest highway. That is where I'm going to cut this short. Obviously, things got better, but it wasn't without a lot of trial and error. I worked very hard for a very long time to turn things around in my favor, and thankfully, I wasn't alone. Throughout my journey, I met a lot of people who were experiencing many of the same tribulations that I had faced, And through our mutual support, we made it out alive. But I told this story mainly to reflect on why I identify as a collector. Why I love the collecting aspect of the gaming scene. What draws me to retro gaming. And that's, it reminds me of the times when I was an 8-year-old kid with my game gear plugged into an outlet of a quick stop in the middle of nowhere with the hot New Mexico sun beating down on me. It reminds me of sneaking out of the house with my Game Boy and Pokemon Blue to a local card shop so that I can dump my quarters into an arcade cabinet. It reminds me of the cool summers where I'd hear my father come home from work and I would just be sitting in my room, leaning back on my chair with my feet up against the television as I played Paper Mario or The Legend of Dragoon. Collecting for me is momentarily living through the highs and lows of my past. It is a chance for me to reconnect with my past self through the games that I didn't have a chance to experience. It reminds me of the times when I felt my entire world was crumbling around me and my only key to escape was through a controller. Thanks for tuning in to the Scrubverse Podcast. If you would like to keep up to date with us, follow us on Twitter at Scrubburst Podcast, at Vetted Games, and at Tornado Jones. Email us at scrubburstpodcast at gmail.com. Also, don't forget to check out our giveaway this month. Links will be provided in the podcast description.